Well, good morning again, everyone. Glad you're here. Take your Bibles and turn to Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. We're finishing up our uh, series called The Untouchables today. We've been looking at books of the Bible that are generally not preached on that often. And for some reason, no one else on the staff wanted this book. Uh, no one else uh, wanted to uh, tackle this. Uh, they are, Pastor Barr, you got, you got this one. I, I feel like I should have a rating system on the sermon this morning. You know how before you watch a TV show now, you've got all the things listed. Um, and so I do want to warn you straight up, we're going to be talking about sex this morning. So if you have a child sixth grade or below, that's why we were sending them down. If you have a middle school student and uh, they don't know about sex, it's too late. They, they know something more than you, what you, uh, you think you're already behind. Uh, and so they shouldn't be too shocked. But in, in any way, our culture is living in a hypersexualized environment. There's no way we can deny that it's, uh, it's right there all the time. And uh, even if we try and guard our children, we homeschool our kids or uh, send them to school or Christian private school, it doesn't matter. They're going to hear about sex in some way or another. I, I remember when one of my sons was, um, I think he was in fifth or sixth grade, and we had not had the talk yet um, together. And he came home actually from a Birmingham Southern baseball game and um, it's incredible what you learn when you go to watch baseball. He was off playing with a couple of friends who were a couple of years older than him, and he came back informing us that his friends who were several years older than him uh, had just uh, learned, they had just found out about puberty. And uh, they said, hey, we just found out we're about to go through puberty. You want to go through it with us, uh, was there. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> the misinformation out there is rampant. Uh, when it comes to sexual things. Um, we live in this culture where even... Here's my thought on this this morning. The world, it's right in front of us all the time. If we don't talk about it in church, if we are so embarrassed by it or so ashamed of it, then our kids will pick up a culture that is not ours. They'll pick up a way of thinking that doesn't go along with God's Word. So I'm going to hear... I'm going to... Just tackle this straight on, and uh, you'll probably hear words you haven't heard on a Sunday morning in quite a while. I pray, I'm not trying to be offensive, I'm not trying to be callous, but at the same time, if these words are being said all over the place, and so here we go, Song of Songs. He, uh, Christian apologists are always trying to define sex, and I find these so funny. Uh, these are a couple of definitions I found on sex this week. Sex is a perfect blending of two personalities, an expression of love that takes in the whole range of man's being, at once a physical, intellectual, and spiritual encounter. Makes you want to jump right on board, don't it? Uh, when you frame it like that. In the act of sex, a man and a woman express the essential unity which overarches their separateness. I don't know any man that's embraced his wife with the thought of overarching their separateness. It loses the, the flame, so to speak. We're going to look at Song of Songs, or as it's called in my NIV translation, or Song of Solomon this morning. And it's the one book, it's probably the one book in the Bible that every middle school boy has actually read. Uh, it is a very descriptive really graphic book, to almost to the point you can't believe it's even in the Bible. I mean, listen to the first couple of verses. It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. I mean, just right off the bat, it's, it's, it's even more graphic, really, than our translation. I mean, when he says, let the king bring me into his chambers, they're not going in there to play video games. You know, there, there's a purpose. When he talks about 
love is better than wine. He's talking about love making. It, it, there is a sexual connotation to this passage. We are so, in the church at times, uncomfortable even reading the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon that, that there have been many ways to interpret it that have been put forth. The way the church sometimes handles it is to make it allegorical. To say um, there wasn't really a man and a woman. And if you read Song of Songs, you, you'll see in a minute, there's, there's a sec, it, it split, so to speak, into a, a discussion between a man and a woman and a chorus, so to speak, of friends. Now, in my NIV Bible, the, the, the divisions of he and she and friends is labeled, but I'm not going to get into all the... Um, into the literary analysis to say whether those divisions are correct or incorrect. There's obviously some things that are written that we know, but in other words, some people will say there is no man, there is no woman, there is no friends. This is all just a big picture of God's love and his church, God's love and his people. And they, they allegorize the entire book. Others will make it more typological. They'll say, okay, there was a man and there was a woman and there were some friends, but Really, they are types. They stand for what's taking place in the church. Now, I, I, I'm typological in a lot of the stuff I do. I've, I've preached over and over again that Jesus is found all throughout the Old Testament in every book, and I believe, <coughs> excuse me, I believe that's just as true for the Song of Songs or Song, Song of Solomon. I do believe there's the picture of the bride and the bridegroom and God's love for us that is that is portrayed here, but many times when people take these two approaches, the allegorical or typological, they never get to the main meaning. Others talk about it as if it were a drama or a story that were being played out. Now, they argue about what the drama or the story is, where the climax is, where the, where the story ends and how it picks up and it's so confusing, you can't tell what the plot of this story might be. I think that the best way to look at it is a song or poem of love, of intimacy. Uh, it seems like the natural, literal translation of the passage is the place you should start. And because I believe that we live in this hypersexualized environment, I think it's good for us to look at again some aspects of what the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is saying to us today. I don't know where you learned about sex. Uh, I uh, learned the most, well, from friends, of course. Um, my parents were awesome people. I mean, just awesome people, but really, we never had a conversation about sex. They never sat me down and said, here are the facts of life, here's what... So I was in eighth grade when I took an eighth grade health class, which was a sex education class. You know, you're just kind of like, oh my goodness. You're learning terms, hearing things, and I learned vocabulary that I, I didn't know, and not all, of it was, not all of it was healthy. I had an older sister, and she was being especially mean to me, and so I said to her, you know, you're just being mean because you're on your menstrual period. You know, I didn't even know what PMS was at the time. I didn't know. I just had enough vocabulary to just kind of, well, that didn't sit very well with my parents, by the way, um, when they heard, heard what I was talking about. But at least I was using the terms correctly. I remember my freshman, I was a freshman in college. I was in a psychology class with Dr. Oscar Jeske. Dr. Jeske was a German immigrant, and he taught psychology, and so he's teaching all, I was at Oklahoma Baptist University, and this is in the late 70s. Yeah, I know I'm that old, but I was in the, it was in the late 70s, and so he was trying to get all these Baptist kids to kind of break out of their, break out of their shell, so to speak. So one of the ways he did it when we got to the part on human sexuality is he gave us all charts with male and female parts, and we had to go and label them, you know, like A is this, and B is that, and C is that. And so you had the male, the female. So he would go around the class to the male students and make us say out loud the, the parts of the female anatomy, trying to break down 
break down the barriers so that we could have an, a discussion about human sexuality. And <laughs> I remember he was calling on some, some young uh, ladies who were freshmen, you know, they're like 18, 19. So he would say, what is letter B? And the, you'd hear the... And he'd yell at them, you will speak up. You will speak up. And one of the things I remember in our class is this poor little girl just yelling out the word testicles and then bursting into tears. <laughs> Today I want to talk about sexuality and pleasure and hopefully put into a proper perspective what, what pleasure and sex is all about. First is this, God is the creator of pleasure. God is the creator of pleasure. Look at, I'll get to, back to Song of Songs in just a minute, but Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created. All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And I believe that includes pleasure. Our sexual identities, our genders, were all created by him and for him. Why, why sex, according to the Bible? Let me just list, and this is not, I'm not even going to have time to really take this apart, but why, according to the Bible, why have sex? Well, first of all, it's children. God said in Genesis 1.28, he blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. How are we going to fill the earth and subdue it if we don't have children? How are we going to have children if we don't have sex? Right? Hello? This, that was not a trick question, uh, by the way. To have children. There's also the element of oneness. Oneness. He said in Genesis 2.24, For this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It's the picture of human sexuality, the one flesh relationship, but it, it, it entails more than just physical unity. It entails a knowledge or knowing of one another. It talks about Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Now, Adam didn't just say, oh, I know her, and she conceived. He knew her, and she conceived. There's an aspect of sexuality involved in knowing one another. Knowing one another is a place where you let your guards down, where you are vulnerable to one another. It's why the Bible talks about how, we've talked about in the past, how we believe this one flesh relationship expressed in sexuality leads to a, a uniting of spirit and soul and body. And how when you physically come together with someone that there are ties that are developed, soul ties, so to speak. Uh, because there's a knowing of one another. There's also an element of protection involved in sex. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5 says, oh, sorry, I skipped that. But since there is so much immorality, now this is in Paul's day, by the way, and imagine what he would say today. But because there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." There's an aspect of sexuality that provides protection. Wives, when you have sex with your husbands, you're, you're, you're helping protect them. And likewise, husbands, when you have sex with your wives, there's a protection against immorality that's taking place. Now, by the way, I just found it very helpful. This is, this is just a hint. I've been very helpful that it, it's never really good if you say to your wife or husband, hey, your body's not your own, you know. Uh, that never goes very far, very well. Uh, it's just not a way to really introduce things uh, that's going to go very well. But we're going to see in a minute that there's an aspect of sexuality that involves sacrifice. In other words, sexuality is increased, so to speak, when we live to outgive our spouses. It's not about what I get 
to receive. It's about what I get to give away. And there's an aspect of, of constantly being sacrificial in our lives that say my, my responsibility, so to speak, is to protect my wife. My responsibility is to love my wife. You understand what I'm saying? There's also an aspect of comfort. In 2 Samuel, it, um, when after the death of a child, it says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. An aspect, a picture of sexuality. There's comfort that comes. And finally, where I've gotten to all the way around is this word pleasure. There is an aspect of acknowledgement of pleasure in sex. Why else would there be a whole book of the Bible devoted to it? I mean, many times we look at the Song of Songs and Song of Solomon and say, why is this even in here? Do you know, it, depending on how you translate things, God is not even mentioned in the Song of Solomon. God is not, there's one passage I'll read to you in a minute where it can be translated the Lord, but other than that, this is about humanity and sexuality. This dialogue between a man and a woman uh, coming together. And I think there's got to be an acknowledgement that says pleasure, as created by God, he looked at the way he had created us and he said, it is good. It is good. There are ways that God made us and parts of our body that are created for no other purpose than to bring sexual pleasure. It's why they're there. Look at the ways that um, some of the descriptions, I'm not going to put them all up here, I'm going to read them to you more than put them on the screen, from the Song of Songs in which she describes him and he describes her. So it starts with this, this is her talking, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. He goes on and talks about how she smells. He talks about her breasts are like clusters of fruit. He talks about her lips, her teeth. He says her teeth are like new-shorn sheep. Her hair is like a flock of goats coming down from the mountain. I, I, it loses something in translation to me. I have never said to my wife, oh, you're so beautiful. Your teeth are like new shorn sheep. I love that new hairdo. It's like a flock of goats. I don't know that that's ever going to really, really going to go very far, but obviously it meant something then. He talks about her belly being a mound of wheat, and it's much more descriptive than even that. She describes him as radiant and ruddy. His head is purest gold. His hair is black as a raven. His, I like this one. His eyes are like doves by the water streams washed in milk and mounted in jewels. She invites him to her bed. He says that he wants to run away with her because he wants to be with her in the garden, in her garden. He wants to climb the palm tree, take hold of the fruit. And by the way, all of this is very sexual language. There's no way to, to, I mean, we can talk about gardens and trees as gardens and trees, but this is a euphemistic way of talking about sexual encounters. The other thing that's not mentioned in this book is having sex for the reason of having children. This whole book is a book on Sexual pleasure, God bringing a man and a woman together. You know, I, I think it's hard for us to get to think that orgasm was God's idea. He's the one who came up with it. He's the one who, who, who put it into our bodies. And really for the, the reason of bringing pleasure. G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy and Philip Yancey who rewrites an intro about this, says this, why is sex fun? Reproduction surely does not require pleasure. 
Some animals simply split in half to reproduce, and even humans use methods of artificial insemination that involve no pleasure. Why is eating enjoyable? Plants and lower animals manage to obtain their quota of nutrients without, without the luxury of taste buds. Why are there colors? Some people get along fine without the ability to detect color. Why complicate vision for the rest of us? Chesterton and Yancey are saying this, their argument for God is that there is pleasure in the world. Many atheists will argue that the reason and proof that there is no God is because of suffering in the world. Chesterton comes about it from a whole different angle and says, it's not why there's suffering, it's why is there pleasure at all? The church universally has not done a good job in discovering and articulating that God is a God who loves and brings pleasure. We, on the other hand, are seen as the killers of pleasure. We're the ones who are seen as the ones who come against anything that is pleasurable. If it's fun, then we must be against it. In her famous book, to kill a mockingbird, uh, Harper Lee writes, um, there's this conversation between Scout, who is the little girl, and Miss Maudie, who is her neighbor. She's an older woman <laughs> in her 40s. And uh, they're having this conversation, and Miss Maudie is a, she's called a regular Baptist. Um, but there are others in town who are known, her primitive Baptists, who she calls foot washers. And they're having this difference. Scout asks her, what's the difference between regular Baptist and foot-washing Baptist, primitive Baptist? Miss Mowdy says this, foot-washers believe anything's, excuse me, foot-washers believe anything that's pleasure is a sin. Did you know some of them came out of the woods one Saturday, passed by my place, and told me that me and my flowers were going to hell? Scout, Scout replied, your flowers too? Miss Mowdy said, yes, ma'am. They'd burn right with me. They thought I spent too much time in God's outdoors and not enough time inside the house reading the Bible. Too many times we've given the impression that anything that's pleasure is sin. The church has failed in its mission if it does not promote the fact that God created everything including pleasure. In his famous book, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you know, I've used it before, there's this discussion between this demon Screwtape and his young apprentice trying to talk about how to trip up God's people and start, stop God's plan from going forward. And he says this in this book. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemies, and he means God's in this sense, God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. We do a great disservice to the grace and greatness of God when we dismiss pleasure as bad when it's one of his creative aspects. So, if pleasure is created by God and pleasure is good, then what's the problem here, right? Well, because we all know there's a problem. The problem is that living without faith distorts pleasure. Living without faith distorts pleasure. The problem's not with pleasure, then what's the problem? Well, ultimately, it has to do with living life without faith. In many surveys, uh, there's a, a researcher named George Burns at Emory University who says that the top three things that people find pleasure in are these, food, sleep, and sex, and in that order. Food, sleep, and sex. Now, we can say that all of these things are good, food, sleep, and sex, but we can also say that when, when any of those aspects is distorted, that it's not good. So, food, the love of food becomes what? 
gluttony. The love of sleep becomes sloth. The love of sex becomes lust or some form of immorality. The problem is not in those things that bring us pleasure. The, the problem is that when we live without a lack of faith, those aspects that are supposed to bring us pleasure don't. In other words, if we're not careful, we find meaning in our pleasure rather than letting our meaning define our pleasure. You understand what I'm saying? So, so many people, they find, they find meaning in their life by the pleasures they consume. Rather than finding our meaning through faith and letting it define our, our pleasure. The whole study of pleasure in humanity is really a fascinating thing. There's so much of it that's in our minds and our perspective that... So, this guy, um, Paul Bloom, he's written this book, How Pleasure Works when he's talking about this. And he did this, uh, he talks about this study at Caltech in Stanford where they brought in people, two groups, and they brought them in and they said to one group, hey, this, this is a $15 bottle of wine. Give us your opinion on this bottle of wine. And to the other group, they said, this is a $150 bottle of wine. Give us your opinion on, their, on this wine. Well, in truth, it was just the same wine because they wanted to see if you were queued up like this is a really expensive wine versus a cheap wine. I know for some of you don't think 15 is cheap, but it's cheap for a bottle of wine. So um, they wired up their heads up, and the people who were told that it was a 150 bottle of wine, their, their minds just lit up in anticipation of what they was going to sound like. And as you can imagine, the ratings difference was massive. It was huge. Humans are unique in this regard in that we find pleasure, so to speak, in unique ways. I mean, we find pleasure in pain. I mean, I, I, I had some sushi last night, and it got mixed up with that green stuff. Yeah, that wasabi stuff. And my mouth just lit up. And I'm like, this is horrible. Wow, that is killing me. Give me some more. You know, kind of thing. Once you start, it's like, I want a little more. There's some sort of weird pleasure in pain like that. I mean, what else describes chili peppers and horror movies and sad songs and why we like them? Climbing mountains and doing dangerous things. There's this aspect of our lives that we find pleasure in overcoming. We also find pleasure in unexpected places. It's why roses given to your wife at an unexpected time other than Valentine's Day, where she's expecting it, actually brings her greater pleasure. Pleasure, however, apart from faith, apart from God, does not produce meaning. It simply doesn't. Solomon, who is attributed to writing this book, whether he did or not, where you know, it's open for debate, but the, it's his song, the Song of Solomon, and he's the king as portrayed. He also had another book, a couple of them really, but Ecclesiastes, he writes. And in it, now let me cue you up on this. Solomon was, Solomon was uniquely positioned to go after pleasure as the meaning of life more than probably any other person in the history of mankind. He was wise, he was rich, he was powerful, he was evidently very good-looking, according to this uh, lady in Song of Solomon. And so he decides that he's going to pursue pleasure as a meaning in life. And here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, and this is the message version. I like the way it's worded. He said, I said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. But there was nothing to it, nothing but smoke. What do I think of the fun-filled life? Here's his answer. Insane and inane. My verdict on the pursuit of happiness, who needs it? I mean, he, I just read to you the first couple of verses. The rest of the chapter, he goes down and he talks about, I pursued wisdom, I pursued food, happiness and pleasure in food, and wine, and possessions, and entertainment, prestige, Public works, in sex, 
I pursued pleasure in all of these things, and I came to a place where it says, where I had to say nothing. It's all vanity. Why is this the case? Because I believe pleasure without faith, pleasure without God's perspective, makes it distorted. We know these passages well. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Can, can you have sex and faith? Well, the Bible, I believe the Bible says yes, you can. You can have faith in the sexual relationship with your spouse. And in doing so, it brings incredible pleasure. But that when we allow faith, if we can't do it in faith, whatever it is, it's a sinful behavior. It distorts the pleasure. And it leads Solomon ultimately to declare at the very end of Ecclesiastes, the last and final word is this, fear God, do what he tells you. Here's the third and final point. But don't get too excited because it's a long one. So <laughs> even though I said final, it's going to go on for a little while. Lasting pleasure requires sacrificial living. Lasting pleasure requires sacrificial living. If God doesn't stand in opposition to worldly pleasure, but rather created you for pleasure, how do we live by faith and enjoy what he created us for? I believe ultimately, again, it's about what we get to give away rather than what we take. It requires a life of sacrifice. Psalm 1611 says this, and it's a verse I've used many times. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, there are what? Pleasures evermore. <clears throat> my, my view on sin and not sinning is this. I can't tell you not to sin, and I'd be a liar to stand up here and say, look, Sin does not bring pleasure. And I've heard this before. Hey, you know, if you sin, you're not, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pleasurable. No, it is fun. It is pleasurable, or we wouldn't go back to it. It brings something out in our, in our lives. But rather, God is saying, look, the greatest pleasure is in my presence. The only way I'm going to stop sinning is not to to deny the pleasures of this life, but to uphold and say, I'm going to look to God and say, I want the pleasures that are in his presence. And everything else is going to fall into line with that. And I believe that that, in, that entails sacrificial living. As Christians, the question is not, how do I seek pleasure, but rather, how do I honor Jesus with all of my life? With everything that I do, how do I bring him honor? So that I can experience the fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. I believe we, I know I'm old-fashioned, but I, I believe we honor him by following his plan. I believe that we honor him that we believe God created male and female. We believe that he created man and woman to have sexual expression in the marriage relationship and that sex belongs to marriage. But here's what I want to make sure that you understand today about sexuality. Your identity is not in your marriage or your singleness. Whether you're married or single, that's not where you find your identity. You're not, you're not, your identity is not in your parenthood, your, your sexual life, my identity, or even your gender. We have this big discussion going on about gender. Your identity ultimately is not found there. Your identity ultimately is found in Christ, who you are in him. And in order to live for him, I have to take up my cross daily and follow him. None of us should live a life that's dictated by the pursuit of pleasure. Now, I, it sounds like I'm saying two opposite things at the same time, and I'm trying not to. What I'm trying to say is 
Pleasure is good. Pleasure was created by God, including sexual pleasure. But pleasure is not where I find the meaning in my life. I find my meaning in the fact that I am in Christ and then pleasure comes out of it. I believe sexual expression is heightened when it is in faith between God and me and my wife. But to do that, it takes sacrifice. Listen to a couple of these passages from Song of Songs. Uh, There should be another one in there, um, but I think it's gone. Anyway, in in Song of Songs 2, verse 7, in in, uh, three other passages, it says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Now, by the way, I find that funny. I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field. I don't know how that has special impact, but evidently it must have. She goes on and says, Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. It's a warning against loving too early. It's a warning against being aroused too early, so to speak. Why? Because it's powerful. Love and sexuality and pleasure, it is a powerful driving force in our lives. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7 says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes and flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. That's the one place where of the Lord is mentioned. And again, depends on the translation. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Love is powerful. My friend Brian Shoup gave me some advice about parenting a long time ago, and I think he heard it from someone else, but he's told it to his kids, I've told it to my kids, which is when you start to date someone or court or however, you, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but whenever you start seeing someone, get advice before you give your heart away. Because once you give your heart away, can't, ain't nobody can tell you nothing, Right? I mean, you're not going to hear any advice anyone's going to give you. So before you give your heart away, get advice about this person and how things are going. And It's powerful. But if I love my wife and I'm married to my wife, it means that I no longer can do whatever I want to pursue pleasure. I don't have sex with other women because my body belongs to the Lord and to my wife. Therefore, I make a sacrifice to to have sexual relations with her and with her alone. If I'm single, then I don't try and just find a spouse in order that I can have some meaning in life. Please hear me, singles. If I could say one thing to you, find meaning in Christ and embrace the single life for where you are today. It may change tomorrow, but embrace where you are today. Don't lose today because you're so looking to tomorrow. Because God's got a plan for you now. And you sacrifice. You sacrifice in your singleness to say, I'm not going to sleep with other people. I'm not going to pursue pleasure. Now, listen, I understand this goes totally against the method of our day, which says, look, you really need to sleep with more people so you'll have more experience when you get married. I mean, we got some thinking out there. And if I'm a parent, then I live sacrificially. I love my children and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord as directed by Him. I remember when I got married, before I got married, it's probably a bad illustration, but I used to golf all the time. I could go out and golf and have a great time. It was guilt-free golf. (laughs) Nobody to answer to. I had a wife. Guilt level went up just a little bit. I should be at home spending time with my wife. My golf game suffered. I had children. My golf game tanked. 
because I suddenly, I sacrificed, and believe me, it was a sacrifice. For some of you saying that's ridiculous. Well, for me, it was a sacrifice not to go golfing, to spend time, you know, starting a church and raising kids. If I have an attraction to someone of the same sex, then I live a life that still recognizes God's plan for sex and marriage, and I live in order to honor him. I sacrifice in my love relationship with him, and I sacrifice by the way I live my life with others. And I believe that doing that brings pleasures evermore by living within his plan. Now, here Here's what I'm going to say to you is I perceive the problem in the church and in a lot of settings. And if you don't mind, I'm going to get frank, and there's a possibility I could offend here, but I am just going to go here because I think this is really important. Over the past few weeks, there have been a number of articles that have come out on, uh, about Josh Harris. Josh Harris uh, became a Christian superstar when at the age of 21, he wrote a book on courting called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was, in many respects, the poster child for homeschooling. His father and mother spoke around the country on homeschooling techniques and events and very, very, very well known. We heard him uh, before the book even ever came out, his dad, I mean. Josh went on to pa pastor a very prominent church and to help even lead a movement. A couple of years ago, um, Josh did a, I, I don't want to speak on things I don't know, there's a lot I don't know in this story, but a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, Josh put out a, um, after 22 years, it's 22 years later since he wrote his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, he put out a documentary entitled, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, where he went out and faced a lot of his critics people who had read the book but had criticized it or found it or damaged, really, by it. And by the end of the documentary, he, um, he apologized and he pulled the printing of the book so that his publisher could no longer print it because he felt like it was doing, though it helped some, it also damaged many. Recently, tragically, really, uh, Josh announced that he was splitting from his wife of 22 years and had what had been entitled, walked away from the faith. Now, again, I don't, I don't know all the details. We pray for Josh, his wife, his children, his family. Again, I don't, I don't know. The problem, and I'm just going to speak honestly, the problem I had with the book from the earliest days on was what I, what I sensed was two problems. One was a money-back guarantee. If you'll do this, if you'll follow this plan of courting, if you won't kiss your spouse until you're at the altar, if you'll do these things, then you're going to have a great marriage and mind-blowing sex. And there was a guarantee that seemed to be... Now, I don't think Josh in any way put that in the book, but as a 21-year-old, he's writing with a definitiveness that kind of comes across like that. Almost like a purity-prosperity doctrine. Kind of like, if you'll do this, then this guarantee is yours. And let me just say, there is no guarantee. You can raise your children perfectly and end up with sinful children. Why? Because faith has to enter their heart and in their lives, and their faith has to become their own. There are no guarantees. And then people who followed the plan said, look, I didn't have sex before marriage. I didn't kiss. I didn't go to, I didn't do this. And now I'm in this relationship with my wife, and we're, we're really battling through. And maybe the sex isn't all that great, because there are issues, you know. There are physical issues. There are emotional issues. There, there are issues, that happen in people's lives where there's no guarantee that sex is going to be, I can tell you, sex is not going to be like the movies. You know, that's make-believe. There's a learning curve to sex. There's, there's aspects of it that are not guaranteed. The second problem I had was this mindset, and it wasn't just in Josh's book, it was in the whole purity culture as a whole. 
the true love waits purity culture that to me, and again, this is just my perspective. Some of us in this church, we embrace, and can I say this too? I'm all for purity. Can I just say right off the bat, if you hear me say, oh, wow, Pastor Mark came away and said, purity, it's not, don't go for it. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, that many times what I heard with this in the purity culture is a purity or even a Christianity without Jesus. Basically saying, if you'll live this pure life, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Can I say this in all love and grace, and hopefully we're still friends by the end of this? No one here is pure. You're not pure. You never were. All of us have been tainted by sin. Now, we see, we think of purity as sexual purity. But purity has to do with our heart before God, and we're all sinful. So what do we need? We need a Savior. And I, I, I think that we held up, even in, in our church, if we weren't careful, we held up before people this ideal that what it meant to be a young person who's a follower of Jesus Christ is that you stayed sexually pure. And again, I'm for purity, but... What it did was it, it removed the relationship of Jesus. When you, when you set out, this is what it means to be, then what you've set up is a form of legalism. You've set up rules that say, follow this and God is happier with you. Do this and God will be more pleased. Do this and you'll be in a better relationship with him. And all we did was create a culture, if we weren't careful, that made kids feel like, one, if you did this, then you're promised. Or two, if you didn't do this, you're on the outs. The problem with legalism, this is my own take. The problem with legalism is that it sets up a standard that no one can fulfill. Paul says in Romans 7, you can't fulfill the law. And so what happens is when we say to people, if you'll do this, then God promises this, when one of two things happen. They do this, and the promise doesn't come. They say, this doesn't work. Or they say, I didn't do that, and not only did I not do it, I can't do it. I keep stumbling and falling. Therefore, I'm no good. I am worthless. This doesn't work. To me, both of those lead to this doesn't work mentality. And whenever we get to a this-doesn't-work mentality, what eventually occurs is what, it's a theological term, it's called antinomianism. It means against the law. Well, if that law didn't work, then this law must not work, so why should I follow the law at all? Why should I follow God's path to holiness? Because none of it works. The problem wasn't that there's not fullness of joy at his right hand, and pleasures evermore. We're following rules rather than following him. We're letting a culture, even within the church, dictate our path as far as sexuality is concerned, and we're not following him and embracing him. Legalism, I think, inevitably leads to a lack where people just say, I'm not following the law anymore, it doesn't work, which eventually leads to unbelief. I'm just going to walk away from the whole thing. I could name names of people I feel like this has happened to, even within our own church, who have eventually walked away or become terribly antagonistic toward the church because what they heard, even here, and, and this is a good place, I think. I mean, we mess up. We're sinful because none of us is pure. But what people heard led them to in some way embrace the legalistic, the rule of it, without the life of it. Life always precedes. It's only by His presence that we can do any of this anyway. What is God's call here? As you read Song of Songs, Song of Solomon... Choose the path of life. Aim for 
the presence of the Lord, because it's in his presence that there is fullness of joy, and it's in his right hand there are pleasures evermore. Do we need to stand for purity within our culture? Absolutely. But if we try to do it without the presence of God engaged in it, it will lead to death and not life. We'll raise little Pharisees and little Sadducees or little liars because they won't tell the truth about what they're engaged in. Or they'll walk away altogether. Wherever you are here today, you may be here having lived a, a life of sexual purity. I want to encourage you just again to focus on the, the presence of the Lord. To understand that even that has to be in his, under his lordship and in relationship with him. On the other hand, you may be here today and say, I've messed up more times than I can even count on this whole sexual thing. Hey, you know what? Here's the good news. Grace is available. Grace trumps legalism every time. Grace will lead you home. Grace will lead you to the presence of the Lord. Receive the grace of God. You have not sinned so bad that God's grace can't cover it, whatever it is. And I, I apologize if at some point within our church you've heard a different message. I apologize with if at some other church you've been beaten up because you stumbled and fell. I apologize on behalf of the church if at some point you've gotten the whole idea that God's sexual plan for your life is supposed to be miserable or non-existent or any other form of pleasure. If we've in some way articulated that. And instead, just relieve, receive the truth that in his presence there are, you are created, intended for pleasure. And pleasure is found in him and in a healthy relationship of following his plan. Lord, I thank you this morning, and I just pray you would lead and guide and direct us I pray, God, that we would receive life from you. I pray, God, that you would just take the words that I've spoken this morning and make them become life to people. I pray if there's anything that I've said that is not within your plan and your purpose, that that seed would just fall away. God, we all stand before you in need of forgiveness. We all stand before you in need of grace and of life. God, I, pr I pray that we will stand with each other, not opposed to, and that together we will experience fullness of life and fullness of joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.